If you've been with us during Lent or Easter, you may remember that we were in the book of John, and the, the book of John's meta narrative is about light and darkness. This is probably becoming a little bit repetitive for you, hopefully. Um, in the book of John, uh, over and over again, we see people coming to uh, to Jesus. Nicodemus in John 3 comes to Jesus during darkness. In John 8, Jesus heals a man born blind. The, di- the disciples see this and are following Jesus. Jesus tells them, we must do the works of him who sent me while it's still day, for night is coming when no one can work. And then the, the Pharisees say to Jesus, are we also blind? And Jesus takes their question and turns it into an assertion. He responds and says, because you say that you do see, your blindness remains. And so the, the whole book of John is about light and darkness. It's about eyes being opened and eyes being closed. And here in Revelation 1, uh, today being an octave or a re-celebration of Pentecost, which was last week, we see Jesus as he has ascended to the throne and is sitting at the right hand of God. We see Jesus in this passage as one whose eyes are filled with fire. Fire being a source of light, fire being a source of heat, intense passion, and and flame. And so Jesus himself, in this passage, of course, John the Revelator is also John the Apostle who wrote his gospel. And so as John's writing, this theme of sight and blindness finally culminates with Jesus himself being the one whose eyes always see. His eyes have light in them of themselves. And so... This is a echo of what we saw last week in uh, Pentecost. So when celebrating Pentecost last week, we, we covered Acts 2, and we saw Peter defending the coming of the Holy Spirit as what? Proof of the ascension of Jesus Christ. We, we noted through the different times in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, how God led his people out of, his, uh, out of Egypt with a cloud by day and fire by night. And then later when the temples are established and filled, they're first empty and then there's an offering, a dedication, fire comes, and smoke fills the uh, tabernacle. And then finally, we looked at how the ascension is proved by Peter's words and demonstrated in that Jesus is one who goes up in a cloud and completes the atonement. We looked at the passage in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, those passages talking about Jesus's high priestly function, stating that Jesus after he made uh, atonement, then sat down. And so you got to see that that connection in the heavenly picture. Jesus finalizes the atonement when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, pulling, as it were, humanity with him, bringing us into the presence of God, him being a high priest for us. Just as the high priest wore a stole and an ephod containing the names of the tribes of Israel, carrying them into the presence of God, so also Jesus, through his ascension, brings us before our Maker. And so John, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, has this picture. He, he is given this revelation of Jesus in his high priestly and kingly state, and the descriptions of Jesus provide for us a framework of faith, if you will, on which we can build to understand who Christ is and 
how we are to relate to his lordship in our lives. And so as we celebrate or remember Pentecost today, today being an octave or, or eight days away from the, the first Pentecost that we celebrated here, um, we see this, this vision and are impacted by it in a radical way. There are, there are a number of, of things that we're going to emphasize today, but I would just submit that what John is seeing in Revelation 1 is an echo of what happened on Acts 2, or in Acts 2, we see the earthly perspective. In Revelation 1, we see Jesus in the heavenly perspective. Uh, perspective. Uh, John having, again, his eyes being opened to the things that are in heaven. So this presents us with a masterful vision of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just the meek and mild suffering servant who through his earthly ministry, demonstrated the love of God and power of God by defeating the works of the devil. He also is the king of the universe, the true man, and our high priest, which is what Revelation 1 brings out. This passage is not just uh, about the sending of the Spirit, but it's also a vindication of the Messiah. Not just did Jesus die on the cross and raise, he also was glorified and, uh, and honored. And so, uh, we're going to cover five elements of this passage today. Again, I promise to be quick. Um, We're going to talk about the purpose of the book. I I said earlier in in our prayer before the sermon that Revelation is the most misunderstood book in the church today. I would state that uh, I don't think there's another book that comes close to uh, Revelation in the manifold of weirdness that is out there and and able to be purchased uh, in the the bookstores. we're going to talk about the purpose of the book. We're going to look at the prophetic parallels in Revelation 1. And over and over again, a meta idea in the sermons that I uh, have been preaching in in the book of John uh, during Lent and Easter this year is the idea of two or three witnesses. And you're going to see that come up uh, again today. We're going to look then at John's revelation that he obtains by the Spirit of Jesus as a high priest and then intimately connected uh, in the ver- literally the very next sentences, Jesus as a glorified Messiah slash King. And then finally, what does this all mean? It is it is utterly important. It's vital that you, when learning to read the Scripture, if you are going to be one who dives deep into the symbolic nature of God's Word, that you come out the other side with application. If, if you just are admiring the Bible for its literary beauty alone, though that is a vital tool, literary beauty alone, without application, you are missing um, some, some grace that God wishes to give to you through his word. Um, it would be like watering your plant and then putting a giant wheelbarrow over it. It will still die. Uh, your faith must be fueled with both information and grace that is transmitted by the Holy Spirit. The, the work that you do mentally to search God's scripture out and mem- through memorization, through meditation, must be coupled with devotion and prayer uh, in which God will open your eyes to see what these things mean. So we're going to look at what Jesus's beautiful descriptions have to do with us and our future hope of glory. So Uh, Real quickly, Revelation opens with an explicitly clear statement concerning the purpose and content of the book. 
Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, I don't know what you mean when you say the word soon, but I don't mean thousands of years later. Um, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So there is a messenger. The word angel simply means messenger. There's a messenger coming to John, and he is opening John's eyes to something that's taking place in the heaven. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The book of Revelation is about revealing Jesus Christ. It is not about revealing the things that happen at the end of time and space, if you will, or what what you and I might call, you know, an apocalyptic um, ending. Now, the very fact that we call things like the end of the world or you know if if you think about it like you know a bunch of meteors coming and blowing up the earth which is what a lot of people actually believe the reason they call it apocalyptic is because this book is actually called the apocalypse and it just that word apocalypse simply means unveiling and again it that's temple language that's vision and blindness language john's eyes are blind though he knows positionally, experientially, that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He doesn't yet see Jesus in his full glory, and so his eyes are opened. There's an apocalypse. There's an unveiling. The veils are removed. And so apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. It means opening up of, of your eyes. And so the book of Revelation is to open your eyes, believer, about the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he's doing in leading his church into the new into their destiny. It's not at all about uh, you know whether or not Russia is going to take helicopters into Israel and tanks from Syria come. You know Syria kind of looks like a tank on a map and all this ridiculous ridiculous stuff. The Book of Revelation is about presenting Jesus Christ in glory to you that you would see his beauty. And being trained with the rest of the scriptures, you can understand the cryptic, intentionally cryptic system of, of language that John is use, utilizing to present a, a distinct picture of who Jesus is. So Revelation is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus. The book includes prophetic pictures of the things which are and which will soon take place, not things which will take place thousands and thousands of years later. So God grants John a vision into heaven by the Spirit to see Jesus Christ and to relay that understanding to the local churches, not to uh, send a you know codex throughout time and space. Hopefully one day, thousands of years later, people will finally get the point. If the book of Revelation is only about what takes place at the end of the age, then most of the church historically has missed the understanding. I think that's an arrogant claim to make. I think that most of the church has understood what Revelation has been saying, uh, not concerning, you know, the world blowing up, the rapture, etc. John, uh, Revelation 1, 4 through 5, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. John is writing the book of Revelation to specific churches with specific problems with specific purpose. He's not just writing a generic book that would then be picked up in and reinterpreted in a new prophetic framework. He's writing to churches. He knows people in those areas. He says, grace to you and peace from him who was and is 
uh, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, the seven spirits is a, is a, a complex idea, but it literally means the manifold spirit that is the Holy Spirit that is before the throne of God. The seven spirits before the throne are really, it's talking about the completion or the, the manifold perfect uh, aspects of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit, in all of his beauty and perfection, is indicated by that term, the seven spirits. It really doesn't mean seven spirits, it means sevenfold or seven aspect spirit. Uh, you can think of a star being a seven sided uh, figure. Um, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. This opening to the book is Trinitarian, and it addresses that the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are sending specific help, specific grace to the church at that time. Whenever we, re whenever we read Revelation, we must understand it as God seeking to strengthen the church with a picture of her beloved. That is, how do you, how do you encourage someone who is betrothed to another uh, person if her heart should faint? You give a description, you extol the praises, you show a picture of who her beloved is. That's wh why do you think long distance relationships are use utilizing things like Skype? Why, why do people talk on the phone for hours and hours when they're engaged? Why do they go on dates? They wish to see a picture of their beloved. So the church is going through a tribulation and God wants to strengthen her with a picture of her beloved, and that's what the book of Revelation is. We see this uh, explicitly in John's opening greeting. To him who loves us, he, he not only is saying, I'm writing to the churches, but then he says, he gives kind of an ode here. This is, this is a reference. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. What John is doing here is saying, I'm writing to you, but really quickly, I'm going to set the stage and acknowledge to him. This is the uh, a literary device that basically is, um, it's indicating, yes, we're going to begin this book, and you're going to get a picture of Jesus, but while we begin this book, first we're going to focus on him for a second. It's like in a baseball game, when they start the game, they, do, they begin the game, there's usually... Uh, something that happens at the beginning. There's a first pitch, of course, which is kind of, you know, saying, you know, that it's a symbol of all the pitches which will come in the, in the game. But what do they do primarily? There's an acknowledgement of where the game is taking place. They sing uh, the, the national anthem. And so this is kind of like John saying, we're going to first acknowledge the fact that we wouldn't be here without Jesus Christ. And the point of this book will be lost without Jesus Christ. John identifies this, this church as the new Israel, utilizing the language of identification that Yahweh gives Israel in the Exodus. He says, in the Exodus, you will be my kingdom of priests. And John here says, he has made us a kingdom of priests. What John is saying is the church is the redeemed new people of God, the ones who he's brought out of bondage, out of the house of slavery. In addressing specific people, John says that Jesus is coming in a specific way. Now, 
I do not at all believe that John is referring to the final second coming at the end of the age. I specifically believe and would advocate that Jesus, uh, that John is saying Jesus is going to come with the clouds, and that coming with the clouds is different than his second coming at the end of the age. So, with that in mind, Jesus, uh, John then says about this that, Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. How are they to who pierced Jesus going to see Jesus if they are not around for the event? And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This idea being that Jesus is coming to Israel, and that just as the, the disciples were going to Ju, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. When John here says that all the tribes of the earth will wail, this is saying that all the tribes of the earth will see the great destruction that is coming when Jesus comes on the clouds, so to speak. So John says in his introduction that Jesus is coming with the clouds and that those who pierced him will see his coming. What ha- Who pierced him? The Roman soldiers who drove nails into his hands and a spear into his side. They will see him specifically. So God wishes to speak to his people. Again, if you want to encourage someone who is betrothed, you you extol the virtues of the one that they're going to marry. God wishes to give to his church a uh, prophetic picture of who he is and strengthen her heart. And so, therefore, God chooses to interact with a person, a prophet, John the Revelator. John describes this scenario, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, which is already happening, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, uh, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so this is building on prophetic uh, Old Testament language. Where is John? He's in exile. He was sent away from from the church. He went in exile to the island of Patmos. Some uh, church tradition says that multiple people, governors, emperors, tried to kill John, and he literally would not die. There's uh, church tradition that says he was boiled alive, and it didn't touch him. I mean, Daniel-style stuff. This is amazing. And so John, they can't kill him, so they're like, well, let's at least control the damage that he's doing, let's send him to Patmos. So he's on this island as a prisoner. Uh, uh, Rome sends him away, and he's on Patmos, and he's there in exile. Now, picture an island. You see land, and what is it surrounded by? Water. Okay, so John is in exile, he's surrounded by water, and he has a prophetic encounter. This is old hat, or it should be to us. And by old hat, I mean this is this is to be expected. It's not surprising, being schooled in the Old Testament, that this is what's happening. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1, if you don't remember these things, Ezekiel 1 through 3 would be a great refresher. Ezekiel is in exile. He's by the Kebar Canal or Kebar River, which means he's surrounded by water. And the hand of the Lord is upon him. Ezekiel has a vision, and in that vision, the Son of Man sees God in glory. Uh, he... In that vision, he sees God in his glory. Yahweh's purpose in bringing 
this prophet named Ezekiel to a prophetic encounter is not for the prophet to have some personal ecstatic vision. It's so that he will encourage and strengthen Israel while they are in exile, letting them know that God is soon going to come and deliver them and vindicate their righteousness by judging the nation who is oppressing them. This is what Ezekiel is about. The entire book is about the fact that, yes, Israel herself is under judgment. That's why they went into exile. That, but at the same time, God is not only going to bring Israel's heart back to himself, he also will judge the nations who have oppressed Israel. See, God brings his people through times of trial, times of tribulation, times of exile, and yet when he raises up a nation to be his chastisement over his people, sometimes those nations take it too far, and then God corrects them as well. And so God is going to come and vindicate Israel, and that's what Ezekiel is about. So remember those things. Keep them in mind. Ezekiel is in exile. He's a prophet being called by God at this point. He is by a river or a canal, Kevar. Um, and then, and then he sees a vision of the Son of Man. This happens again in Daniel. Daniel is where? In exile, in Babylon, at the bank of the Tigris River. He sees a vision of one like the Son of Man, and he's clothed in linen. God does this to show Daniel that all the nations which are currently warring for uh, supremacy in, the, in that region of the world, they are going to come to nothing and eventually, God is going to bring Israel back to the land and return her to her first love. Is that language echoing at all? God shows Daniel nation after nation, which he's going to raise up and lower, culminating in a return from exile, Daniel 10 through 12. These are the two or three witnesses that I re was referring to. If two witnesses are saying these exact prophetic pictures, a prophet by a river, having his eyes open, the heavens open, having his eyes able to see into the heavens. And it's about God quickly drawing his people back to himself, judging the unrighteous nation who is oppressing her. Then why do we take the third witness and alter his testimony to say that it's not about that specific thing? Seeing that John's encounter is a recapitulation or a revisiting of these explicit prophetic pictures before, why should we think that John's prophetic writings apply to the end of the world instead of being a message of hope and quick coming vindication for the church in the first century? There's no reason to do that. If you do, there's no basis that you have. If you take uh, John out of, if you take Revelation out of that context, you have no leg to stand on. There is no foundation. And when the winds and waves come against that sort of theology or framework, the house won't stand. So, simultaneously, this book is a demonstration of the new exodus. God is bringing his people out from Israel. Revelation 1, 10 and 11, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Do you remember last week when we saw in Acts 2 how there's a great rushing wind from heaven? What is a trumpet? It's a wind instrument. What happened on 
Mount Sinai, Pentecost being the celebration of the giving of the law. Moses goes up to the mountain, God calls him up, and it says that the the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. It's kind of this like contextualist trumpet. It, there's no mention of trumpets at all in the Bible. And then when, when Moses is going up to Sinai, it says, and the sound of the trumpet continued to grow louder and louder. It, what trumpet? When did it start playing? God is, is demonstrating to Moses, this is the giving of the law, that you are coming up to see the pattern of how to form the church or form the people of God, form the temple, the place where people will worship Yahweh by coming up to the mountain. And so what happens here when John says, I heard a voice sounding like a trumpet, he's saying, I'm having a prophetic heavenly encounter. He's intentionally using that language to demonstrate the reality of what's happening to John. Now, again, when I say John is using that language, I mean that the things that John experienced are literally what he wrote down, but the beauty of what he emphasizes gets to a specific point. John here, of course, is not also saying, uh, although he does mention it, that he falls down, but he's not saying, and then I was like, oh, wow, this is totally amazing. And, you know, he doesn't use that kind of language. He uses explicit language to connect the spiritual realities that he's seeing with previous realities. Verse 11 saying, write what you see in a book and send it to who? The seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Do you remember last week how in Acts 2, we saw that all the nations that God was calling into his people were named? We have a similar renaming here of particular churches being drawn into the people of God. So John hears this trumpet from heaven and a command to write down the words, and the trumpet that Moses heard and the great rushing wind from from heaven during the day of Pentecost are explicitly in mind. John is saying this is a spiritual Holy Spirit encounter. God is giving instruction to his people, bringing them out of exile, establishing worship in the house of God. And so John here is then given the grand vision, the the letter to the pining bride uh, of her future groom. This vision, of course, is a high priest, and the beginning of the vision actually begins with an image of lampstands. Now, lampstands, if you may or may not remember, are one of the first elements in the temple, and they're for a specific reason to give light to the house. Revelation 1, 12, and 13, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash. Now, just so you're clear, that's the, that is the explicit outfit or, or clothing that the high priest wears. So we see Jesus in the midst of these seven lampstands, a son of man, who's wearing priestly clothing. And As always, the Bible, the biblical narrative, it contains its own key to unlock the meaning. Verse 20, skipping forward just for a bit, as for the mystery of the seven stars, Jesus is saying to John explicitly that the things that are are prophetic images are to be interpreted in such a way as they apply to real things. As the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels messengers, pastors of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. What what Jesus is doing for John is he's saying, John, 
I know I've, you know, I've called you and I've filled you with my spirit, but I want you to write down so that everybody else gets it clear that the things which you're seeing are, are a poetic, prophetic indication of what's going on on the ground at the moment, uh, not 2,000 years later. The high priest. Further, we see that the church is the new worshiping people in the earth. What were the the lampstands for? Exodus twenty five thirty seven. God telling Moses how to set up the tabernacle. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. So the lampstands are set up in the temple to provide light for the high priest, for the worship of Yahweh, for the 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 people of Israel to have a way to encounter God. Jesus Christ, the one, as we saw last week, who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, is the same one who attends to the lampstands, moving between them, filling them with oil, and trimming them and lighting them on fire to perform the priestly service. This is what John is saying when he sees one who is among the lampstands. Jesus is going back and forth, filling them with oil, lighting them, burn, you know, snuffing them out, uh, not totally, but just until he can refill it. And then finally, you know, moving around and performing his high priestly function in the midst of these lampstands. So what this means is that Jesus Christ is the one who baptizes in the Spirit, as we saw last week. Jesus, while he was physically present, said of himself, John 8, 12, that I am the light of the world. But then he sends his disciples out, and he says to them, you are now the lights of the world. When when we look in Acts 2, the disciples literally become candles. What happens? Little things of fire rest on their head, and they're walking around as lights to Israel. What does Peter say? He says, you all missed Jesus and you crucified God in the flesh. Peter is being a light to the blind Israel who had just killed Yahweh in flesh. And so what does all this imagery mean? Again, I made it clear earlier. If you if you study this stuff and don't arrive at concrete uh foundation for the strengthening of your faith, I think you're missing the point. The point of this image that John is saying is the churches do not fill themselves with oil. Jesus is the one who fills the lampstands with oil. Jesus is the one who brings and administers the Holy Spirit. And when you or I, therefore, are feeling, you know, like we're in the desert, we don't manufacture oil ourselves, and we don't fill ourselves So what does that mean? We need to come to Jesus as the high priest. We need to acknowledge his his authority over us, not just his authority as the king over the universe, but his authority and designated office to keep us filled, not ourselves. What does that mean? It means when you can agree with David when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not my own shepherd. Jesus Christ is the one who fills my lamp with oil. And because of that, we know Jesus' character, and we are assured of mighty assistance and grace. We are to remember that Jesus Christ himself said he's the one who does not snuff out a smoldering wick. If your lampstand is running low and you're about to go out, take faith. Come to Christ. Ask for his help. 
God's grace is abundantly toward us, not only in that he has called himself, but he's also established his son to be the high priest to administer the lampstands. And that's what the beginning of the book of Revelation is all about. If you remember, he goes on to rebuke the churches in the next two chapters, in two and three. And he says, You're, you need to come to me by eye salve. You need to return to your first love. He's saying, you can by coming to me and taking faith in me. Intimately connected, of course, to this view of Jesus as the true priest, we see him as the glorified Son of Man, that is, the true king that God has established. It, John continues to write down this description in Revelation 1, 14 through 16. He says, The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, that is our connecting point to our study in John and Acts 2 is eyes that are open, filled with fire. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Each of these aspects we're going to look at very quickly, but each of these is saying Jesus Christ is the answer to all the prophetic promises that Israel was given, and for us, he is our great source of strength and leadership. Though Caesar has set himself up as the son of God and the emperor, the emperor just meaning the king of kings, the lord of lords, uh, Caesar cannot even touch the glory that Jesus Christ has, as John sees in this passage. Jesus Christ's white head speaks, of course, of his wisdom, but also proves his righteousness in life. Proverbs 16, 31, uh, a, cr a gray hair or a white head is a sign of righteousness. The mention of snow indicating heavenly divine purity. What does God do when he's reconciling with Israel? He says through Isaiah, Come now, Israel, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them like snow. And so God here is showing that Jesus Christ is divine, not only in his life, but also in his function over the church. His feet being as burnished bronze speaks again of the intense walk of purity, as well as his everlasting rule and authority. John is writing in a code established by the other prophets. Daniel, when he is uh, speaking about these things, interprets, not only interprets, but tells Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, the king of man, uh, the man's kingdom has feet of clay, feet of iron and clay. And Jesus here is shown as having feet of burnished bronze. Now, I don't know if you've ever knocked pieces of metal together, but iron is less glorious and less strong than burnished bronze. Burnished bronze is, is an intensely uh, hot metal that you have to uh, go through tons of work to purify, and bronze has been proved. Iron can be moderately crude, although you can make good iron. But Jesus' feet have been proved in the fire, but the clay and, and iron feet, they get smashed to pieces. And so, John is saying, not only is Jesus a pure, perfect, divine king, but he's also going to stand forever. In the mention of the stars, of course, Jesus holds the seven churches in his hand, showing that they are dear to him. Where are they? They're in his hand. What did Jesus say about those who the Father, he gives, uh, who the Father gives to him? He says, I will lose none of them. None of the churches are going to be plucked away in this great tribulation that they're going through. None of them are going to fade 
in the light of this terror that's coming against them because the stars are in his hand. And of course, I don't know if you've ever tried to hold a star, but I think you would melt. Jesus is holding stars, showing that he is the one who is like Yahweh. He's stretching out the heavens and he's putting the stars in their places and he's giving to them names. This is what Jesus is about. He is about identifying and establishing and holding on to and protecting his churches. Redeemed covenant communities. Finally, the the logos, that is word of God, utters the law word of God, that is out of Jesus' mouth comes a two-edged sword, first one to slay the wicked man's heart and then to open it up to show its need for grace. The two-edged nature of the sword being explicitly God's word going forth and judging and ruling the nations. Um, Out of Zion, the law will go forth, etc. We talked about that last week. The final picture, of course, is that Moses said, out from among you, God will raise up a mighty deliverer uh, who's like me. And, And Jesus demonstrates here that he is. When Moses went up into Mount Sinai and comes down, his face is radiant. That's the only other place in the Bible, so that's, it's very clear that there's an explicit connection. Uh, no one's face shines with light except for here and the Transfiguration uh, and Joshua, but uh, we don't have time to talk about that. Whereas Moses' fate was, face was kind of radiant, you can think of Moses being like the moon, John says here that Jesus' face is shining like the sun. The moon reflects what happened when Moses went up? His face, saw, he talked to God face to face, and then he comes down and he has to put a veil over it because everyone's weirded out. Like, Moses, your face is glowing. I, I don't think they had glow-in-the-dark anything. And Moses' face is glowing. And so they're like, Moses, cover that up. We can't deal with this. Jesus here is shining. His face is shining like what? the sun at the strength of the day, that is, at the highest point, at the the hottest moment in the day. I, I always try to tell myself to mow my lawn earlier on Saturdays, but I wait till like one o'clock, and it's the worst. The sun in its strength means this is the, the brightness of Jesus Christ's reign of authority. And what, what it, is, it also means is that Moses reflected but Jesus, what, is, what does the moon do? It reflects the light of the sun. What does the sun do? It produces the light. J- John is saying Jesus is divine here. Jesus is the final one to meet with God face to face on our behalf. We don't need a mediator anymore. M- Moses was the mediator for Israel. Here, Jesus is shining right before John face to face with the prophet. So, what are these? What are, it's great that Jesus looks like this, you may say. Uh, what does this matter to me? Well, I would encourage you that this matters a great deal for what you're going to be. Not only do these aspects of Christ's glorified appearance call us to marvel, literally, and fall down on our face, uh, if you are lacking a, a uh, an impetus or motivation to worship, meditate on Revelation one through seven. But but. These things also provide us with wonderful hope because John, the same revelator, John the Apostle, who wrote these things, describes why they're important in another book. 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called 
children of God, and so are we. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What is John saying? The world was blind to who Christ was, and the world is blind to who you are. And he goes on to say in a second, you're blind to who you are. Beloved, we are God's children now. So that's true. We know positionally that by faith, through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, we are the children of God. Uh, We were once blind. We did not acknowledge Christ. Now we know we acknowledge Christ. He says, he goes on to say, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That final sentence is vitally important for the believer. You purify yourself as Jesus Christ is pure. You're not manufacturing this purity. You are reflecting on Jesus's purity for you, his head white like wool, like snow, and that becomes your pathway to purification of yourself. The fighting of sin in a believer's life only focused on the cessation of wrong behavior will never work. And if you find yourself stuck in trespasses, I would submit to you, give yourself wholeheartedly to the devotion and of meditating on Jesus Christ as revealed through the Gospels, the Epistles, Revelation, and of course the Old Covenant, but explicitly in the New Testament it's, it's much clearer, and that by meditating on those things, your eyes will stop looking elsewhere. So, likewise, we purify ourselves as he, Jesus, is pure, and so we ought to lay aside every filling Uh, feeling of insignificance and inferiority concerning our promised destiny in God. You aren't very significant in this world. Uh, No offense. Um, You aren't. But what does John say? He says, you will be like Christ. His face is shining like the sun, a star. You're going to be like the son of God, like him, not the Son of God. There's weird cults who actually, anyway. We are literally, according to these passages, achieving and uh, acclimating ourselves to these things. Um, We are literally the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. He says to him, look into the sky, see the stars, count them if you can, so your descendants will be. They'll be like the stars. They'll be little lights in the midst of darkness. These are the ones who walk, according to Daniel 12, in wisdom. They're they're ones who will shine like the stars of the heavens. And this isn't of ourselves, but it's because of God's promise, and we become little lights of the world. This is a major uh, point for you, is you are not as you think you are. God's destiny for you is much greater than you can imagine. That's real hope. And that destiny I'm not talking about situational blessing necessarily, although that's great, and we shouldn't run away from that. But you will be vindicated as one that God has chosen and formed and and redeemed and, and set up to be a picture of his son. So with that in mind, let's just completely put away everything that hinders us from running towards Christ. John says that we will be like Jesus, and Jesus here is demonstrated as the glorious king of kings, greater than Caesar himself, greater than any nation's leaders. Not only that, he's intensely pure in his walk and high priestly function for you, for me. And because of that, we should run away from everything that's any, 
any hindrance at all. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to deliver us from the errors of popular understanding of the book of Revelation. God, we ask you that you would give to us uh, minds that would study your word, that we would, uh, as we read, aggregate meaning um, so that we wouldn't be confused, nor that we would be deceived by any who would attempt to uh, dissuade us from looking at your son. We pray that you would give us a mighty vision of Jesus uh, in his heavenly state. We thank you that not only have you filled us with the spirit, but that you, Jesus, are currently walking among your lampstands, trimming them, filling them with oil. We pray that you would anoint our hearts to truly worship you this week and to give us mighty grace in Jesus' name. Amen.